Today on the deep end, cancel culture one more time, okay? And I've got a reason for that. And uh, plus, sometimes the voice of reason comes from an unlikely place. And I have a new hero. Yeah, I have a new hero. He's he's badass. There, there, I said it, okay? I said it. This is the deep end. I am beloved. The men that call David, the son of a Jesse, the John that slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to the deep end with Tim Hatch. Oh, thank you, Derek. And thank you, everybody, for joining us here tonight, 7 p.m. on Tuesdays. I know it's your favorite night of the week. This is the deep end with Tim Hatch, and it is episode 19 of season four. And... So much is happening in our world. And on this weekly show, I talk about the world and I talk about the word. And so we're going to get to the life of David later on, but we always talk about what's going on in the world. And before we do any of that, of course, we want you to like and subscribe on youtube.com slash the deep end TV. If you're not watching here, well, please start watching here, especially if you're on Facebook, head over to youtube.com slash the deep end TV. And if you do that, you could do me this huge favor and hit the like button and hit the subscribe button and then hit that little notification bell is about to come up ring, and you can be notified on your smartphone device every time we are live, no matter if you're ready for it or not, or if you want to listen to it or not. Okay. So make sure you're checking us out at where? The Deep End on youtube.com slash the deep end TV. One more shameless plug for the book, Move Entering into God's Promises for You is out, is available at timhatchlive.com slash books. Make sure that you get yourself a copy of that or check it out at Amazon. Just search Tim Hatch Move on Amazon. It's available there too. Um, I would I would really appreciate if you do get the book and read it, uh, give me a five-star review. And if you get the book and read it and don't like it, I would appreciate if you lied and gave me a five-star review. Uh, also, like us on our social media pages, follow us, check us out, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Instagram, all those places. And you can go to the deepend.tv where you will find ooh, 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 <laughs> some some swag, deep end swag like this tumbler, which um, the beard has been scientifically proven to automatically improve the taste of whatever you are drinking. Uh, okay, that's enough shameless plugs. Let's get into your favorite segment, probably of your favorite night of the week, the uh, deep end news. Deep end news, the news you choose if you could choose news. Yeah, deep end news, the news you choose if you could choose news. First, we got to go over to the subscribe cam. Uh, first, I'm sorry, not the subscribe, subscribe cam. First, we got to go to the shelf of shame. The shelf of shame is getting packed. So you see, we've got now, who do we got? We have got Pepe Le Pew over here, and I did manage to put Cara Dune up there. Turns out she was inanimate and nothing to be afraid of. Um, so there you go. The shelf of shame just keeps getting more and more packed with people who are getting canceled in our culture. Uh, on the deep end here, we talk about cancel culture for a reason. I'm going to get there in a moment um, because we're going to do a new segment in the deep end news, and it's called This Week in Cancel Culture. And I only am doing cancel culture this week because I love this video to introduce This Week in Cancel Culture, and then we got two little things to talk about. So check this out. I love that. I love that video. Uh, so this week in cancel culture, the question we're always asking is who's going to get canceled next? Who in the world is going to get canceled next? Now, we could talk about the fact that uh, Portland wants to cancel Evergreens. Um, so there's a Portland school that wanted to rename their school mascot the Evergreen. 
Uh, and then someone voiced an opinion, and I know this is taking it to an extreme, of course, because there's probably just one nut job out there. Although, uh, from what I hear, Portland's got plenty of them, just like a lot of other cities in the country. But one nut job said, no, evergreens are tied to lynching. And so we can't do that because evidently now that means we're racist. So evergreens. And I really feel bad for the school here. I feel bad for the students, not because they can't be called the evergreens, but because somebody suggested that they be called the evergreens in the first place. Can you imagine you're facing another school and their mascots like the the bears or the mustangs? Mine was the mustangs or or theirs, there's the lions. And, and they're going, go lions, go mustangs, go bears. And, and there you are on the other side, on the other uh, side of the field. And you're going, go evergreens. <laughs> I just think it's so ridiculous. Oh, cancel culture. Um, but why evergreens? That's my, that's how, that's, that's the part of this news that offends me. Someone came up with the idea of naming their school team the evergreens. But the, the interesting thing is there's a sadder victim of cancel culture this week. The most woke president in our history, Barack Obama. Barack Obama has been canceled. Okay, so this is out of ABC News in Chicago. Uh, Waukegan Latinx activists protest renaming Thomas Jefferson Middle School after Barack and, Ob and Michelle Obama. And the reason why they have been canceled by these Latinx activists. By the way, I have a lot, a lot of Latin friends in my church, a lot of Latin friends personally. I have never heard them say, call me Latinx. <laughs> I don't know where this comes from or what it's about. But anyway... Evidently, there's some people that don't want to rename Thomas Jefferson Middle School, which, by the way, Thomas Jefferson has been canceled for so long now, his canceling is almost being canceled. But anyway, they're trying to rename Thomas Jefferson Middle School into Barack and Michelle Obama Middle School, and some people say, no, that, that can't happen because he holds the record for the president with the most deportations of undocumented immigrants in this country. So it just seems like in cancel culture, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, you're going to get somebody mad. You're going to get somebody mad. And this is hilarious because they're going to come for their own. They're going to eat their own. And I talk about this stuff because here's the thing. Here's why I talk about cancel culture so much. Here's why it bugs me. And also doesn't bug me. Actually, it kind of, it kind of illuminates something for me. Reminds me of something that I teach to the church all the time. Here it is. We are made for a perfect world and we don't have one. And we're always looking for, you know, someone to lay the blame on for this world being imperfect, whether it be... A uh, president who deported people that we are related to or come from or come with or whatever, or whether it be someone from another country or another color or another creed or another ideal or another political persuasion, it's so easy for us to say the world's broken and they're, they're, they're to blame. The world's broken and we need to get those people out of here. That's really um, a very, um, well, first off, it's half biblical. It's half biblical in that the world is broken. We all know this. We all know the world is not as it should be. And we all know that man fail. Every man fails. <laughs> but cancel culture is that pharisaical spirit that says, you're the failure, not me. And if we get rid of you and silence you, then the world will be a better place. Really what cancel culture is, it's the great cry of our hearts that, that Jesus told us to pray, right? What was that cry? Your kingdom come, your will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. We want heaven on earth. And we know it's not here and somebody's to blame. And so let's go after people and let's tell them that they're to blame. Which brings me to a voice of reason that I never expected, but he stepped up at the right time to be the voice of reason for us. His name is Charles Barkley. He's a former NBA MVP. And during a March Madness telecast, 
he had this to say about our current heated cultural climate. It was the uh, Saturday, by the way, was the uh, 53rd anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So the topic came up about the voter ID law in uh, Georgia, and then he was asked about that, but then he responded not with politics. He responded with the voice, the voice of reason. And I want you to hear what he said because it was wonderful. Watch this. Yeah, but the one thing I took out of that piece was, man, I think most white people and black people are great people. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are designed to make us not like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer. I truly believe in my heart most white people and black people are awesome people. But we're so stupid following our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And their only job is, hey, let's make these people not like each other. We don't live in their neighborhoods. We all got money. Let's make the whites and blacks not like like each other. Let's make rich people and poor people not like each other. Uh, let's let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe that in my heart. Man, thank you, Charles Barkley, voice of reason, and he's a hundred percent correct. He's a hundred percent. Uh, correct. We are being trained to not like each other by our politicians. Remember that Democrats have to beat Republicans. Republicans have to beat Democrats. To beat each other, they have to have money. To raise money, they have to demonize the opposite side so that you will give them money to beat them. That's it. That's the that's the game plan. That's how it happens, friend. And And so we get all up in arms about the others, the others, the bad people over there that look like that or talk like that or think like that. We got to stop listening to this stuff. And, 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 and by the way, this is a historical fact. Every totalitarian regime has arisen to power throughout history by demonizing a group of people. Okay. I, I want to give you an example. Actually, I want to give you an example. This is from um, Walter E. Williams. Uh, he wrote an article pitting us against each other at Crisis Magazine. And he says this, quote, the pathway to totalitarian regime to a totalitarian regime is to demonize people whose power you want to usurp. That's the typical way totalitarians getting power. They give the masses someone to hate. In the 18th century France, it was Maximilien uh, Robespierre uh, promoting hatred of the aristocracy that was the key to his acquiring more dictator power than the aristocracy ever had in the first place. In the 20th century, the communists gained power by promoting public hatred of the czars and capitalists. In Germany, Adolf Hitler gained power by promoting hatred of the Jews and the Bolsheviks. In each case, the power gained led to greater misery and bloodshed than anything the old regime could have done. End quote. That is 100% right. You have to watch out for hatred. It is hatred in the human heart that pits us against each other and that leads us to look for someone who will lead us to defeat the bad people. And as a Christian, we are, we are not enemies of any one person or any group or people. We are not. We cannot be. The reason why we cannot be is because we were enemies of God and he made peace with us through the blood of his son. And so as Christians, we, Ephesians 6, 12, do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Nobody is our enemy. And even if they are our enemy, they want to be our enemy. We love our enemy. But every once in a while, ladies and gentlemen, and this is true, and this is true historically, the church has to push back against totalitarianism. Like the church gets a lot of flack for not pushing back in Germany in the 1930s and Hitler. And it's got a bad reputation in many respects and in many ages for not pushing back when it should have pushed back. And I wonder if we're at the place where we need to push back again. I do. And I think we are. 
And it, it brings me to another unlikely voice of truth or reason. A brave and powerful pastor in Calgary, in Canada, stood against draconian governmental overreach. Again, Canada, home of the imprisoned, now-released Pastor James Coates, who was imprisoned and put in solitary confinement for disobeying mask and um, public gathering mandates. Pastor Arter Pulowski took on a Karen-in-the-making woman who showed up with five police officers to do what? Showed up at his church to do what? To shut down his Passover celebration. He may be a Messianic Jewish pastor. I'm not sure. And he gave them the boot. And he gave them the boot with power. <laughs> I want to show you this. I want you to watch this whole clip. I've watched this clip like 30 times and I love it. Oh my God. <laughs> I love this clip. You're going to love it too. Watch, watch this. Please get out. Get out of this property immediately. Get out. Okay. Get out of this property okay. immediately. Out. I don't want to hear anything. Out of this property immediately. I don't want to hear a word. Out. <laughs> out. Out of this property immediately until you come back with a warrant. Out. 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 Out of this property immediately out. Immediately go out and don't come back. Don't, I don't want to talk to you. Not a word. Out of this out of this property immediately out. I don't care what you have to say. Out, out, out of this property, you Nazis. Out, what a out. Gestapo is not allowed here. Immediately, Gestapo is not allowed. Out! Do you understand English? Get out of this property. Go. So go. Go. And don't come back without the warrant. Out, Nazi. Out. Out. You understand? Nazis are not welcome here. Out. I just, I just love it. And don't watch. come back without the warrant. It's almost done. Do not come back without the warrant. You don't understand that? Face. You're not welcome here. Nazis are not welcome here. Gestapo is not welcome here. Mm. Do not come back, you Nazi psychopaths. <laughs> Unbelievable, sick, evil people. Intimidating people in a church during the Passover. You Gestapo, Nazi, communist, fascists. <laughs> Don't you dare coming back here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know. I know. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there's too many name callings in that moment. But it was when I watched that, the Holy Spirit entered my body. <laughs> I have to say that, my friend, is courage. Courage. Like you say, Pastor, he should be careful with his. I get it. Yeah, that's right. He should be careful. And and maybe you're of the opinion that uh, you know. We need to comply with whatever the government says. I, I'm never of that opinion, first of all. I think the government should always be held in check, and it is our job as American citizens to protest our government when it takes on too much power. That's what's in our constitutions and our Declaration of Independence, for heaven's sakes. It becomes necessary at moments in history to usurp the power 
because it has started to become detrimental to human flourishing. And that's where we are in this country in so many respects. It is shocking to me the silence that is that is so common to uh, pastors. And I, I do have a serious problem with it. Like when, when will they go with five police officers in the health department and go and inspect and, and, and stop a, a Home Depot or a Lowe's or a Walmart or any number of stores that stayed open? Why don't they go there? No, they go to the guy that they can pick on. They don't go and shut down the riot. They don't go shut down the riot that's destroying public property. And many times public property in predominantly black neighborhoods, they don't go and shut down the riots. No, they go and shut down the, the guy celebrating Passover in a church of 150 people. This is ridiculous. And Canada, I got to be honest with you, to our our, na- our neighbor to our north, we've got to pray for you. Last month, it was you imprisoning, your, 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 your police imprisoning a pastor because he, he didn't want to follow the mask and um, occupancy mandates. And now this month, it's uh, this showdown between the public health department and this pastor who, thank God, he had the gumption to step up. And you should see the um, Twitter comments of that, of that video. How many atheists? In that comment, in the comment section, say, I'm not a Christian. I'm not religious, but I'll go to his church. The world's looking for courage. The world's looking for courage from the church. And I fear that the church just doesn't have it anymore. We need to reclaim our birthright. First century Christianity was built on courage. The, 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 the disciples disobeyed, remember, the Sadducees and the religious council and continue to preach Jesus because they knew that was the truth. That was right. That's what we are made to do. And today, we're just kind of just falling on our backs and letting the government push us around and we need to step up. And here's why. Question. I got a good question for you and I'm going to get to it. The answer in this tech, uh, in this talk on the life of David. Why do health officials visit churches and call church and uh, call churches and question churches so often. Why? Why do they do? Why do they do that? But never Home Depot, never Walmart, never Lowe's, or any other number of public gatherings. Why? Could it be because the enemy, the god of this world, hates with all of his heart the worship of the living God of heaven? Could it be that the god of this world, who I believe is instigating governments in this world? all over now, could it be that he is so intimidated by worship of the church, he'll do whatever it takes to silence it. And this has everything to do with our talk on the life of David, with our talk on the life of David, because the life of David um, is a life of worship. It's a life of worship. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. Uh, And I want you to stay with us because the news, as I try to do every single week on this show, ties to the scriptures that we're going through. And it's amazing how often what we're going through as a culture ties so well to what's happening in the world. Could you do me a favor, though, if you're a deep ender, consider giving at thedeepend.tv slash give or the cash tag thedeependtv or paypal.me slash thedeependtv. Could you consider giving? And hey, check me out on Twitter. I post these videos even before you see this on the uh, on the show. And I have a lot of discussion about that there. But anyway, consider giving and make sure you stay here with us for this next segment on the life of David, because we are going to talk about why worship matters so much to the church and why I think the government is so adamant about shutting it down. Let's get into it. The life of David. 
life of David. All right, here we go. If you've got a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're talking about worship today. We're talking about worship, and the title of this talk today is Worship Makes the Difference. Worship Makes the Difference. Today, we're going to spend a good deal of time talking about what we are created to do, worship. Now, I want to just take you back to pre-creation times. Pre-creation times, the devil, Lucifer, son of the morning, the morning star, you could say, Scripture calls him that, is in heaven with God with the angels, and he is the the highest angel, and he is the worship leader, the, the one who is, is created to bring worship and praise to the Creator. He rebels. He is then cast down to the unformed earth, the un organize the chaotic earth and he lives there and that's his territory again this is before creation so then god well before the ordered creation then god in genesis 1 3 speaks brings order brings division brings distinction between night and day between land and sea between beast and, and fish between um uh, mankind and the rest of creation. And mankind is made out of the dust of the earth, and his primary job is to bring glory to God through the creation. In other words, mankind was created on this earth, on enemy territory, to be a proverbial slap in the face to the former worship leader of heaven who tried to usurp the authority of God and and then was rejected and sent down to this earth for that. You may not have ever heard that, but that's what I believe. That's what I believe. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So you have to understand that we are on this earth to bring worship to God. And every time we worship, we are punching the devil in the face. (laughs) Oh, especially when you worship when things stink, when life sucks, you are punching the devil. You are uppercutting the devil at that point. When you worship God, in spite of what you feel in pain or sorrow, you are telling the devil, my joy is unchanging because my God is unchanging and he's always good. And I don't care what you throw at me. That's the testimony of Job's life. That's the testimony of Jesus's life as a human on this earth, that he did everything to glorify God in spite of all that persecution and especially the cross that he endured for us. We got we to gotta realize that worship is so important because worship is it's a difference maker in our world. But when it comes to worship, we have to talk about proper God-honoring worship. We have to talk about this because of what has happened in the last uh, text in 2 Samuel. If you go back to last episode, don't do that now. But if you go back, we talked about the death of Uzzah. Uzzah steadies the ark with his hand and he's struck down immediately. God puts him to death and people say, oh, I don't understand that. And we talked about why that happened. But really the reason why it happened was because Israel was not practicing God-honoring worship. They were practicing worship in accordance with the Philistine methods of approaching uh, Yahweh. And that just never will do. Israel was given clear and specific guidelines on how to worship God. We talked about that last week. And I ended last week talking about this, that modern singing today in the church has lost a lot of theology in favor of a lot of emotionality, a lot of sociology. We've we've exchanged good theology for personal personal emotion in our singing. And I'm not an anti-emotion guy. I think we should be emotional and expressive to God, but I am 
anti-emotion in when emotion becomes the center of our singing instead of doctrine, instead of theology that matters, that shapes our mind and how we think about ourselves. That is alarming to me as a pastor and a theologian. And what we have today is the sad reality of me-centered worship where every song seems to revolve around me, my dreams, my wants, my plans, my visions, and God exists for me, and he's here chasing me down, and he's hunting me down, and he's madly in love with me. And, and many times we just copycat the world's music, and we just slap Jesus's name on it, right? We just slap Jesus's name on a pop pop song, and we say, okay, now this is a Christian song. It's not right. We've got to get back to good theological worship. And I was listening even today to a group that I love, uh, and, I, and I highly recommend the Maverick City music. I love them. And you should like them too. They're great. But the the one song that they had where they were singing just repeatedly about Jesus staring in our eyes and us staring in Jesus' eyes. And when I look into your eyes and when I look, I mean, that's, that's weird. It's like love. It's, I call it Jesus makeout music. Jesus makeout music. Where Jesus is our lover. No, he's our Lord. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our friend, but he's our King and our Savior and our Lord. And so last week we talked about the fact that Israel's worship looked more like the world than what God outlined in the word. And today I, I, I fear for the church in pastoral concern that we don't adopt the world's methods in our worship of our God because he is distinct, he is holy, he is not, a, he is not like our lover who rejects us, he's not like um, a marriage partner, he's not like just some friend, he is the savior, the creator, the sustainer, the, the ever living one, and he is worthy of worship in accordance with his truth and the truth of who he is okay theology and worship we got to bring these two strangers back together again theology and worship have got to come back together again and we're going to work root our worship in what god has revealed in his word and i believe when we do that worship will make the difference and so when we come off the heels of Uzzah's death in second samuel 6 and we enter into this next chapter where david finally does bring the ark of god back into the uh the city of david he does it rightly he does it according to the truth of god's word and there's a blessing and a benefit to it and we're going to go through those seven blessings of of worship in this talk let's get to the text second samuel chapter 6 verse 12. It says, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an oxen and a fattened calf. Now we are told, first of all, David finds out how much God has blessed Obed-Edom. Now, remember, David was first afraid of the ark because of what happened to Uzzah, and then he sends the ark off to Obed-Edom's house, and then Obed-Edom gets blessed. And we are reminded here in this text that that's what the presence of God does. Yes, God, uh, in holiness, judged Uzzah, but ultimately, his presence is a blessing to our lives. And worship, properly ordered, brings his presence into our lives. And when we are in his presence, our lives are blessed. Got it? That's the foundational moment for this text. It's very important that we get there. Uh, by the way, David clarifies the problem in 1 Chronicles 15. This is a parallel passage to 2 Samuel 6. 1 Chronicles 15, 13, David says, because you did not carry it the first time to the Levites, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Now that's, the theme of this text. 
We did not seek him according to the rule. What rule? The Torah, the 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 the, the um, protocol in the the first five books of the Bible on how Israel is to be distinct from all the other nations and how they are to worship their God. This God you don't make an image of. This God you uh, you will not see. This God you do not um, profane with sexual morality in His temple. This God is different than all the other quote unquote gods that the other nations worship. And we have to realize that this is the responsibility of the church today to make sure that the God of heaven and earth uh, are is worshiped, is worshiped in a way that honors him and glorifies him for who he is, not who we want him to be. Uh, let's go to first Chronicles chapter 1526 a little later. It gives us some more detail about what David does. It says, um, and because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. And so that is a sin offering. That's a sin offering. So they're purifying the Levites so that the Levites can carry the Ark. And uh, very important that you see what the scripture is outlining here. I don't want you to miss this, this moment. And then if we go back to Second uh, Samuel 6, just look at the last passage here. When they were carrying uh, on the poles the Ark of the Covenant into the temple or into the city of David, it says when they bore the Ark of the Lord and, and they had gone six, six steps, he, thus David, sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Six steps and then sacrifice. Six steps and then sacrifice. And they did this for 10 miles. <laughs> 10 miles. This is amazing. I mean, David, you know what? He made a mistake, but he's making up for it now. <laughs> he's that Lord, lesson learned. I got it. I understand what you're saying. Okay, but we got to go further here. And I want to lay out some points about God-ordained worship just from this moment thus far in the text. First, in God-ordained worship, there is an offering for sin. So the Levites had to be cleansed. Okay, well, when we come to God, we have to acknowledge first that we need forgiveness. We need our sins washed away. So when properly God-ordained worship is rooted in the fact that that he has, he has made the final sacrifice. He's our true David who made the sacrifices necessary to bring us back to himself. And then secondly, in God-ordained worship, there is an offering of ourselves. And God, and so like David made this enormous uh, uh, gesture of giving to God, every six steps, a sacrificed animal. Every six steps, a sacrificed oxen. Uh, we too come to God and we worship him in giving and offering ourselves. And that's why in our worship environments, we should take an offering. That's why in our worship offer, uh, environments, we should uh, sing. We should uh, serve. Be, we're called to serve. So that that Sunday morning event or Saturday night event, whenever you go to church, that you come together, you understand that Jesus died for this to happen, the offering force. And number two, there's an offering of yourself to God and you're giving of yourself to who he is because he actually already owns you. Okay, that's the reality. You are his. Let's go on to the text. Uh, verse 16, uh, verse 14, 2 Samuel 6. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. He was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And the word dancing here, it could literally mean spinning around wildly. I mean, he's not just dancing. He's going 
cray cray. <laughs> he celebrated wildly, which brings me to point number three. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. All right. Isn't that great? Point number three is in God ordained worship, there's joy and celebration. There's joy and celebration. When you worship God, there should be joy and celebration. And I have to say, sometimes when I go to church, it seems like they look more like a funeral than a festival. And maybe this is why people don't want to come. Maybe this is why they would rather go to a baseball game and celebrate some guy hitting a ball out of the park like wild animals than go to church and worship the living God who beat death, hell, and the grave and came out and is alive forevermore. We really do have something better to celebrate, right? We do have something better to celebrate than a home run. And, and by the way, um, you, you know, your team could win tomorrow and and uh, win today and lose tomorrow. <laughs> so you're always just celebrating temporal victories in sports. You're always celebrating temporal victories in award shows or in movies and whatnot. When you celebrate the Lord Jesus, you're celebrating something that's eternal and fixed and permanent. The, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church should be exciting. Church should be moving. There's no, there is no biblical precedent for boring worship, for worship that is like nails on a chalkboard, you know, just pulls teeth. Uh, no, no. Mm -mm. David worshiped with all his might. And we should note something about this. David worshiped with all his might. And he was, uh, oh, wearing a linen ephod means he was dressed like a priest, which is kind of cool because it's telling us, look, we're a kingdom of priests. And that's true. We bring people back to God. Anyway, I want to make a point here about the fact that David, a man's man, is worshiping like crazy. He's celebrating God like crazy. And here's the point that I want to make. Here's the point. Real, real men war for Christ and worship Christ. Real men war for Christ and worship Christ. Okay, see, worship is not a woman-only thing, men. Worship is not something that your wife does or women do. It is something they do, but it's not only them that do it. David is a man's man, okay? He's a man's man. He had 30 mighty men under him, 30 mighty men. And the the uh, the acts of these mighty men are listed in Chronicles, and it talks about one guy went into a pit uh, with a lion on a snowy day, and he killed the lion. Uh, another time, they broke through the gates of the Philistines to bring David a glass of water. Um, other times, they killed hundreds and, uh, of soldiers with a simple sword and a simple whatever. You know, these men were mighty, and they followed David as his, as their their guy. David never lost a military battle, never once lost a military battle. David beat Goliath. What I'm trying to tell you is David was the man's man. He was a man's man. In fact, David is the Tom Brady of the Old Testament. Tom Brady of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, New England, I went there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so um, D David is the mighty, mightiest mighty man that you can imagine. And he is a worshiper because men, men of God worship Christ. Men of God worship, and they are expressive with it. No, I know. I know some of you guys, you're not expressive, but I got to know. I got to be honest. If I bring you to the football game, you're going to be expressive. If I, it's just about what you're expressive over. That's really what it is. I, I love to worship God. And I love that in our church. And I hope that this is the reality in your church. And if not, you got to cultivate it, that you're, that there's men on the stage singing their hearts out to God, that there's men, because we cannot abdicate this. We cannot let just women be worshipers. David didn't, neither should we. And I think we got to reclaim that in the church. 
It's exciting. It's joy-filled. We celebrate what God has done for us in Christ, but then we don't stay silent. We speak up and we shout and we celebrate. Amen? Okay, let's go on. Verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting. Mm-hmm. You can shout in church. And with the sound of the horn, that's just the, you know, electric guitar in those days. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, or Michal, I don't know how you say her name, but anyway, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. Nope. She despised him in her heart. She despised him in her heart. Wow. That's something, huh? This is his wife. And and she's watching him worship God. And she's holding him in disdain. Can I tell you one more point about God-oriented worship that God-ordained, I'm sorry, God-ordained worship that might not come to us automatically in our minds, but is a reality? Wherever there's God-ordained worship, there's going to be disdain from false believers. Wherever there's real worshipers, there's going to be disdain from false worshipers. And in this case, it's Mikhail. Now, in her defense, Mikhail has had a rough go of it. She, remember, if you remember, she came to David. She loved him. And I'm going to make a point here. This is, oh, I hope you pay attention here, please. And especially those of you who are not yet married, I hope you pay attention here. Mikhail came to David. She loved him because he had just beaten Goliath and he came into Saul's, uh, you know, uh, faction, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> service. As a, as a general in his army, and he kept winning these battles. And then because Mikhail had a, you know, had a, a, a love interest in David, Saul says, I'm going to use that to get him killed because he was jealous. So remember, we talked about this already in the season. But anyway, so Saul says, I uh, see that you're my daughter. Uh, I, want to, I want to give you my daughter in marriage, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and get me 100 uh, foreskins of the Philistines and bring them back to me, and that'll be the bride price, and then you can be my son-in-law. And David's like, wow, that's really a big deal. And he's like, all right, I'll go do it. And he goes and gets 100 Philistines and kills them. And he brings back their foreskins in a bag, <laughs> which is kind of disgusting. But anyway, uh, this is how Mikhail is brought into marriage with David. But then she was, if you remember, she was taken from David. She was given to another man. The guy really loved her. And then David rips her back out of that man's house and back into his house through Abner. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And so she's had a rough go of it. She's had a rough. But I, but I wonder this, and this is why I said single people pay attention for a moment. I wonder if Mikhail loved warrior David, but she didn't love worshiper David. Hmm. I wonder if Mikhail loved the warrior David, but she didn't love the worshiper David. Sorry about that apostrophe. Uh, we need to talk about something here. We need to talk about marriage and really all your close relationships. Find people, especially in marriage, find someone of the opposite sex who has a heart for God, okay? Uh, find friends who have a heart for God. And here's my word of advice to you on the deep end for all your personal relationships. Do not measure a person by their outward performance in life income, abilities, job, status, what they have. Measure a person by their inward piety toward God. Not outward performance, okay? Inward piety. And 
I can't stress how important this is. And if there's anything that Mikhail teaches us through her life, it is that you cannot fall in love with what you see on the outside in people. That's what she did. She loved David because he was a mighty warrior, but she didn't love David, the mighty worshiper. The mighty warrior is who he, what he did. The mighty worshiper is who he was. Let me tell you the problem with looking at someone and basing your relationship on them with their performance. And again, by performance, I mean what they do on the outside, what they create, what they build. Performance is always temporary. And it's really just about externals. How much a man can win, how much a man can make, how much a, how much how a woman looks, how thin is she, how long is her hair, right? And 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 here's the thing about about performance. Performance always leads to pride. If you do well in your performance, you're going to be prideful. This is this is why celebrities are always getting divorced left, right, and center because and, and not just celebrities, but rich millionaires and CEOs, because they can afford it, number one. And number two, because they suddenly think, hey, I've arrived. Look at my life. How dare they challenge me? How dare they correct me? How dare they not worship me for the glory that I am? That's the problem with measuring people by performance. Performance leads to pride and, and prideful people are not teachable. And you need somebody in your life who's teachable, who will listen, who will respect you and respect the word of God. Piety never grows old. Piety never grows old. Um, it's a internal reality wherein the person grows more and more humble more and more teachable, more and more dependent on God. Mikhail loved the warrior, David, but not the worshiper because she fell in love with what he could do, not who he was. Got it? Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3. It's a passage that we really trip up on and we make it a legalistic passage about makeup, but that's not what it's about. He says in 1 Peter 3, 3, he says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. And by that word, don't let your adorning, he's talking about don't let what you think makes you beautiful be the outward. Okay, he's not saying don't wear makeup. He's not saying don't wear jewelry. He's talking about don't let that be what makes you you and desirable. And in verse four, he says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which God believes, which God sees as precious. Okay, this is so important for us to understand because Mikhail made a horrible mistake in her life, loving the man's performance, but not the man's person. And I say that to young people. I say this to young people all the time, especially when it comes to unbelievers. Don't, don't get married to an unbeliever. Just don't do it. Oh, goodness, young people, please pick another sin. By all means, do something other than that that's, that's egregious to God. Because this is not just about you. It's about your kids, about your generations. It's about your descendants. I mean, find someone whose heart is delighted in God. And you say, I know, I'm looking, I'm waiting, I'm, 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 I can't find anyone. Are you in church? Are you in small group? Are you engaged? Are you taking some shots at some people? Are you taking some risks? Are you asking some people out? Are you looking for them? Like they're not, God's not going to drop them from the sky into your living room. You've got to go out and do something. You've got to go out and get them. Make them move. Ask them out. The worst that could happen is they reject you. Maybe you ask them out again and they accept you. Who knows? But the fact of the matter is you got to find someone whose heart is for God. And that's why dating matters because dating is, we're not just trying to hook up as quick as possible. No, dating is, I'm trying to see if your heart is for God or if your heart is just for dating or hanging out or whatever. Anyway, 
timeout over. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed that part of the, the show. Let's get back into the main idea of worship. Uh, verse seventeen. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in his place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Uh, before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. By the way, do you see that worship is actually a festival? Do you see that worship is actually a festival? Um, but here's what I want you to see from the the points that I'm making today is this. In God-ordained worship, uh, there must be God-ordained order. There must be God-ordained order. Can we go back to that text? He uh, he offered burnt offerings, uh, and then he does this. And I want to show you this. This is in um, this is in First uh, Chronicles sixteen. Okay, same moment, but here's how First Chronicles sixteen relates what happened. Verse one, it says, they brought the ark of God and set it in the tent that David had pitched for it and they offered burnt offerings, peace offerings. We all read that, right? He finished the offering, burnt offerings, peace offerings, blessed the people, named the Lord, and then he distributed them food. It was a festival. Then he appointed, look at this. Then he appointed, verse four, all right? Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, uh, I'm not even going to try that name and all these other names. And I'm just going to skip. Oh, by the way, Obed-Edom is there. Um, and they were there to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Lord, uh, the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. He appointed. So what you see here is you see uh, to the larger point of what I was talking about before uh, is, is this point, is that uh, in in God-ordained worship, there has to be God-ordained order. There has to be a structure to it. And in the church, there has to be a structure to it. There has to be a sense of, okay, this is about God. We are going to worship him in holiness and in truth. And we, we've got to enter into his presence according to who he is and not what we want him to be. We got we to gotta worship God according to who he is. That's why the truth matters in worship. That's why we got to marry theology and worship again. We've got to bring biblical theology and worship back, singing back together again. And the biggest point that I want to make here is, is this simple truth. Worshiping God is rooted in truth because we, worshiping God is, is not about what we want, but about who God is and what God has done and said for us. There was order to the house in Israel. There's order to how they brought the ark in. There was order outlined in the, in the Old Testament. Who does what? What family of Levites worshiped what and, and, and organized what part of the temple? And it's so important because as we approach God, we don't approach God with what we want him to be. We approach God for who he is. This is why Jesus says to the woman at the well that you worship him in spirit and in truth. And, and instead of fighting over the accoutrements of worship, okay, which, by the way, the Samaritan woman wanted to do with 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 uh, Jesus. She said, "Oh, they uh, our people say Mount Gerizim. You say the temple in Jerusalem. What do you think?" He's like, "That's not about. It's not about that. That's that's an accoutrement. That's an external thing. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about spirit and truth." Mary, Mary, bring back together worship and a singing and the truth of God, and that's why we we talk about the the reg the regulative principle in worship. Worship should be governed by the truth of Scripture. Many times in the Old Testament, 
people were put to death, like Uzzah, because they didn't worship according to the rules, the truth. Nadab and Abihu were put to death for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord in Numbers 3-4. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 15 with the with the uh, Pharisees. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They exchanged God's truth for their own ideas of truth, and they came to God with what they thought he was. And then even in the New Testament, in later portion of the New Testament, Hebrews 12-28 says, Let's worship God in reverence and in awe, for he is a consuming fire. That's Hebrews 12:29. He is a consuming fire. Um, we've got to understand that there's an order to worship. We come in, we give thanks to him for, for sacrificing himself for us. We bring him tithes and offerings. We worship him in giving. We worship him in serving. And then we worship him in receiving the word and hearing what he has to say to us, even when what he has to say is not what we want to hear. It's what we need to hear. Now, the text mentions a guy named Asaph. Did you see Asaph's name? Uh, Asaph becomes this personal uh, kind of associate of David's. Asaph actually is, uh, one, is an author. This is a person that David appoints in the, into the authority of the temple worship. He's an author of three psalms. Uh, he was given um, the orders of David to bring praise and thanks to God every day in the temple. And along with his relatives, he ministered with uh, before the Lord every single day in the temple. He was described also, and this is most important, as David's private prophet. prophet his his private prophet. Sorry, trying to say that five times fast. Anyway, First Chronicles twenty five says Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. Asaph was David's personal prophet. So so here you have prophetic ability upon the man that David appointed to lead the worship of God in the house of God before the ark of God. And David sees this ability and he says, Asaph, I want you right by me. I want you to be prophesying right next to me. Now, this brings me to number six. And I hope you have stayed this long for the, for the episode because this one's huge. In God-ordained worship, uh, there will be a prophetic atmosphere. There will be a prophetic atmosphere. Now, don't worship. Uh, sorry, don't freak out here about <laughs> the idea of prophecy. Some Christians, they love to freak out about, oh, prophecy. Oh, that's, that's, when, that's when Christians get strange and crazy, right? No. The New Testament admonishes prophecy. Uh, Romans 12, 6, Paul says, if you have the gift of prophecy, prophesy. He says it in 1 Corinthians 12, 10. Uh, God gives the gifts of miracles, prophecy, uh, distinguish between spirits, other kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. And 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then even Timothy's call was administered through prophecy. 1 Timothy 4, 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you through prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So the question is, what is prophecy? What is prophecy? And why should I be excited about this in worship? Here's, here's what prophecy is, okay? Prophecy is speaking God's perspective over a situation. That's layman's terms, but that's really what it is. And you need this. And I believe prophecy is released in worship because when we worship, we exalt God, we lift him up, and then we also, by implication, lift ourselves up into who he is in his presence, and we start to see the world from his point of view. You need this because you are limited in your vision and perspective. You are limited by, you know, self-esteem and, you know, uh, insecurities and all those things inside of you that make you feel bad about who you are. That's why you need prophecy. You need 
someone just like David did needed, he needed Asaph, someone to prophesy over you and tell you God's perspective over a situation. And I believe that David brought this man in close to him because he knew the value of prophecy and prophecy is birth in worship. You say, well, what does that mean in the, in the local assembly? It means that you have friends who can speak to you and say, hey, listen, I think that the Lord is telling me to say this. Or, and I don't like to use those words too much because they, they can get manipulated. But when someone says something to you, um, we like to say in our church, I see in you. When, when people say, I see in you this. I see in you this gift. I see in you. And you need to understand that God's calling you to this. And we have that relationship structure where people can speak God's perspective into our lives. Do you understand how powerful that is? That is one of the most powerful things that you can experience when someone who loves you and worships God with you can say, hey, the Lord is saying to you this, and it lifts you up to a place that you never thought you could be. People told that to me when I was a young man. I see pastoral ministry of you. Don't you understand how much a young man would have needed someone to say that to him? I thought it was crazy for one to do this, but someone came and prophesied and it and empowered me to be elevated. Okay, we got to go on. I got to get through this. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, uh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering before the eyes of his servants, uh, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Okay. David, go home, David, go home, David, excuse me, goes home to bless his house and he gets hate from Michael. He gets disdain. And she says this thing about the female servants, and you might think, oh, she's jealous of the girls. No, that's actually female servants in the ancient world were the lowest of the low in the home. So she's basically mocking him. She's deriding him. She's saying, you're just like one of those low, low lives. You're like one of those low life female servants. And uh, she's, she's disrespecting him. And now you see her heart compared to David's heart. That's why I say about marriage. Back to that. Uh, Richard Phillips, a commentator, writes this. So poorly matched were Mikhail and David that at the very moment he was most pleasing to the Lord, worshiping him and loving him, he was most despicable to her. At the very most, at the very moment he was most pleasing to the Lord, he was most despicable to her. In in your quest to be married, young people, if you're serving the Lord and they hate you for, and you're dating someone and they can't stand that, get out. <laughs> Nazis are not welcome here. Yeah, get out because they are going to out yeah they are going to yeah they are going to take you right out of the call of god in your life if you're worshiping and serving god and they have a hard time with it get out yeah okay so she despises him now you gotta remember that michael was oh by the way she's listed here as the daughter of saul can we see that on the screen here she's listed here as the daughter of saul twice in this passage because she's really in saul's heart she's really of Saul, okay? She's really from his line, not with David. And you remember that she was actually an idol worshiper because at one point she took an idol to disguise as David in bed, which means she had the idol and it was a big enough idol that it looked like a human body. This is a woman that worshiped God. She does not have a heart for God and she's not worshiping with David. She's looking at him and criticizing him. Be careful of these people because they're going to be around you and you don't want to, you don't need to waste your time trying to befriend them or be close to them. These people who despise you when you worship God. David resoundingly rebukes her. Resoundingly rebukes her. Verse 21. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by my female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. A couple things. He says it was before the Lord. I, I'm not dancing for you. I'm, I'm dancing and celebrating for the Lord. Okay, and then he says, it was the Lord who chose me 
And that's why we worship. We worship because God has chosen us. Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We worship God because he loved us. Brothers and sisters, let me say something that I see in David here that I want you to have in your life. Never, ever, ever, ever apologize or back down for worshiping Christ to anybody. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. He is your God. He is your sovereign. He is the one who laid down his life for you and you have nothing to be ashamed of. When you think of the idiotic things that people celebrate and worship in this culture, the last thing Christians need to do is feel some insecurity or inadequacy in worshiping the God of creation. And I think that a lot of these draconian lockdown measures and these mandates about gathering in the church are instigated not deliberately maybe on purpose by the health officials and the governors, but but by uh, subconsciously as motivated and instigated by the God of this world who hates the worship of the God of heaven. Let us never back down or be ashamed of worshiping our Savior. Amen. Verse 23, the last one we read, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And that, my friend, is God's judgment upon her. The end result of her life is that she was barren. In the ancient world, to be barren is to uh, the is to be disgraced to the nth degree, to the ultimate degree for a woman. And she's judged by her actions, her actions of and her spirit of being in the line of Saul and despising David for worshiping God made her barren. God, God did this. David didn't have to do this. And I want you to say, I want to just kind of use that as an an opposite point for the final thing I want to say in God-ordained worship, and that is this, that there were there is a fruitfulness in the life of a worshiper. There is a fruitfulness in the life of a worshiper. Michal was not fruitful because she was not a worshiper, and David was. You lift up God, he lifts you up. You, ex you exalt God, he expands your life. And this is a fact. And so let the haters hate let the malcontents demean and disdain you. God will exalt you and lift you up and protect you. And you won't have anything to apologize for. Your life will be a light to those around you. But you've got to be a worshiper. Worship makes the difference. Don't neglect it. Don't dishonor it. You need it. My friends, be worshipers. Be worshipers. Don't just come to church. Enter into the presence of God. The devil wants you to stop. The government wants us to stop or has wanted us to stop. They're lightening up a little bit, but nonetheless. And the God of this world will do whatever he can to stop your worship. Don't let him worship God in spirit and in truth. Hey, support the deep end, would you? That would be really awesome. Don't give us your tithes. I don't want your tithes. Mm -mm, this isn't your church. This is not your church. But if you can support us any way you can, thedeepend.tv slash gives. Make sure you, uh, again, like and subscribe to the video. Um, hit the notification bell. Make sure you're always aware of when we are live. And then most of all, check us out at the Deep End TV where you can get this vessel that flavors up whatever drink you put in it. Mm. Deliver. Delicious. <laughs> Deliver. Delicious. Uh, yeah, that is what's available on the deepend.tv. 
for $15. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed bringing it to you. And I will see you next time on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. The Deep End is brought to you by listeners and viewers just like you. Consider giving today. Hey, if you don't have a home church, come and check us out at one of our campuses. Visit waterschurch.org and you can find a time and location that fits your schedule. Tune in next week for The Deep End with Tim Hatch.